The title of our lesson this morning is The Word of God, and I invite you, if you will, I don't know if you can see it down here or not, but to open up to the passage that Austin read for us just a few moments ago, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 13, because this will be the text this morning that our lesson will come from. In fact, what I've done this morning is simply outline the text and let it be our main points, but the points that you have in the text are very important. And for emphasis' sake, I want to read it to you once again before we start dissecting this passage. But in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, beginning, it says, For the word of God, and I'm reading from the King James, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not, ma- not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him, of him with whom we have to do. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 13, the Apostle Paul gives us a description of what the fully informed and defensive and offensive Christian should be wearing. Beginning at verse 13, he tells us about the whole armor of God and all the different things we need to put on, like the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and to gird our loins with truth. But as he comes to the conclusion of the things that we need to have in order to be a good Christian soldier, he gets to verse 17 and he tells us that we need to take hold of the sword which is the Word of God. He describes the Word of God as a sword. Now, it's interesting, as scholars who are smarter than I am, uh, debate back and forth which book of the Bible was written first. Was Ephesians written first or was Hebrews written first? Uh, They're very closely related as far as the time period. Some people think Paul penned, Uh, the book of Ephesians, and there's some think that the book of Hebrews came later, whoever the author was. And there's others who say that Hebrews came first and, and Ephesians came later. And so we don't know, as we start looking at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, whether or not Paul had read the words of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 and makes application to what's being said there, and says we have a sword, which is the word of God. Or it may be, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, that the the word of God is a sword, and the writer of Hebrews took upon that imagery and gave us some spiritual commentary about what Paul was talking about. Now, it may be that neither one of them borrowed from each other. It may be that the Holy Spirit just told Paul to write, it's a sword, and may have told the writer of Hebrews, use the imagery of a sword here to show its power. But regardless, the Holy Spirit wanted us to learn some things about the Word of God. He wanted us to appreciate some things about the Word of God because it is unlike any book you've ever seen. So we, what we want to do today is just simply look at the text and see what the writer of Hebrews says when he talks about the Word of God. So we'll spend our time doing that this morning. And the very first thing he wants us to realize as we look at the text is simply this. The Word of God 
is a living word. Notice what it says. It says, for the word of God is quick in the King James. Now, that's a word we don't often use anymore. It's an old English word. But the old English word quick means to be alive. It means to be full of energy. Uh, We still use the word quick when we talk about the quick of the nail. Um, If you've ever got something caught in the quick of your nail or had somebody stab you in the quick of your nail, uh, I know sometimes when people were, were tortured long ago, they would stick pins into the quick of the nail, and that would let you know that you're alive because it would cause you to jump. Um told you this story a long time ago on a Sunday night, how that back when uh, people, they weren't sure if they were dead or not, they oftentimes would stick a uh, pin in the quick of a person's nail to see if the person was still alive. And that's where this old English word comes from. But the actual translation is the idea that the word of God is alive. It is living. It is unlike any other book you've ever seen or ever held in your hand or ever read This is a living book in the Library of of Congress over in Washington, D.C. They are supposed to be the largest collection of books that the world had ever seen. Uh, They have, um, if I remember correctly, 530 miles of shelving as far as books to go on. They have over 29 million volumes of books in that particular library. But folks, with all those particular books in there, only one can make this claim. Only one is this way. And that is that the Word of God, the Bible, is alive. It's alive. Now, I guess the question that needs to be asked then, uh, what does it mean? To be alive. What does that mean that the Bible's alive? Well, it means that it's relevant for any age. It's relevant to any person. It doesn't matter if you live now. It doesn't matter if you'll live 100 years in the future if the Lord doesn't come back. It doesn't matter if you lived 100 years in the past or 500 years in the past or 2,000 years in the past. This book has always have, will always have application for you. It's always relevant. It never changes. It will meet with any generation. It will meet with any person. It will meet with any gender. It will meet with any education. This is a book that has application to everybody and has relevance to everybody. Sometimes there are textbooks that because of the passing of time... They're not good anymore. They need to be thrown away because of new discoveries, because of of changes in history and that type of thing. There are warehouses where textbooks just sit and gather dust because nobody wants them anymore. There are novels that people used to love and read because uh, they were so inspiring, but as times change and people's attitudes change, nobody wants to read those novels anymore. There are biographies that at one time when somebody read them, They thought, wow, this is a great story. I'm glad I read it. In fact, they may have even been number one on the bestseller list. But as people's attitudes change once again, as the world changes, as people's thoughts even about that particular person the biography was about change, 
Before long, that particular life story of someone's life ends up into the wastebasket of eternity is never picked up again. But the Bible is relevant for all ages. It is alive. In fact, the reason why it is alive, because in it is the very words of God. God has breathed life into this book. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 reminds us that all Scripture has been given to us by God and is inspired by God. Literally, God has breathed into this book and therefore it's profitable for everything. You read the verse and it goes on. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. But it's also alive when you think about the verse previous to that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 where Paul is praising Timothy that his mother and grandmother told him the scriptures and the reason why he's happy about this is because the scriptures will make you wise unto salvation or give you life. This book is a living book. Because regardless of who you are, regardless of when you live, regardless of what generation or eon of history, this book is still relevant and always will be until Christ comes back. And it's only in this book that you're going to find what gives you life in this world. But we need to move on. Notice what else the text says. It says that the word of God is a powerful word. Once again, it says, for the word of God is quick and powerful. It's interesting, the word for powerful here in the Greek is the Greek word energies. You didn't know there was a Greek word energies, did you? And believe it or not, it's the word that we get our word energy from. But the idea in the Greek word is not just energy, but something is working. It means to be at work. So when the writer of Hebrews here says, for the word of God is alive and it is working. In other words, what he's saying is, the word of God is something that's different from any other book. There may be news articles that inform us, Uh, There may be novels that inspire us. Uh, There may be textbooks and other things that uh, teach us some way to go. But only the Word of God can transform us. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11, uh, God describing the Word of God, He says that when my Word goes forth, It never comes back to me void. In other words, my word is always working. When my word is out there, it is doing something. I think a good illustration of this is simply every time we offer the invitation. Every time you hear the word of God proclaimed from this pulpit, whether by me or somebody else, Any time in a Bible class you hear the Word of God, it's going to have an impact on your life. Now, what you will do with that impact is up to you. You can refuse it or you can accept it. You can cause it to make you live a different kind of life or it can have no impact on you at all. But regardless, 
The Word of God always causes you to make a decision. The Word of God is always working. It's always working on you. Even as cold as your heart may get, the Word of God is still there. You've made the decision not to let it change you, but yet it always causes a decision to be made. As I said, God said in Isaiah 55 and verse 11, my word, to paraphrase it exactly from the Hebrew, my word never comes back to me empty after I send it out. In other words, there's always a response. The word of God is at work. It is energizing. It is something that has an effect. But notice also what the text says. It says the word of God is a penetrating word. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Think about the picture that the writer of Hebrews has in front of us. He wants you to visualize in your mind a sword coming down and slashing somebody open. He wants you to picture in your mind someone coming up to someone and just cutting them right in half. Not to get too graphic here, but just split them open. And he wants us to have that imagery in our mind because he wants us to understand that the Word of God is the same way. That the Word of God with one blow can can open up the body, can open up the human heart and expose us for who we really are. Expose us to other people who we really are. That's the way that the Word of God works. It exposes us. It opens us up. It lays us open for ourselves to see and for everyone else to see. It's interesting We can think of ourselves maybe as being pretty good people. We can look at somebody else in the world today and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Or we can say, well, I know I have my problems and maybe have my pet sins, but my sins aren't as bad as that person. But folks, the Word of God, the sword of God, it will open you up and reveal that you are a terrible person. You're an awful person. Because in the Word of God is the will of God, and we see how violated, how much we violate the Word of God. But in the same way, we may think that we are a very bad person. We may think that we're the lowest of the low. We may think that we're the filth of the filth. We may look at others and say, I will never, ever measure up to any of these people. But yet, the sword of God opens up our hearts and helps us to realize that there's someone who loves us so much. And there's someone who is willing to do so much because of that love. And that we've been created in the image of God and God wants us to spend eternity with Him. And so we can see how, as the Bible describes here in the text, that this is a two-edged sword. In fact, as you think about it being a two-edged sword, And in thinking about how it can cut the heart, once again, we can bring up the idea of how people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You remember how in Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching that very first gospel sermon, and he got to the invitation time, if you will. And he says in verse 36, he says, Therefore let the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the text says, because here's the word of God coming, here's the word of God slashing, and it says they were cut to the heart because of what the word of God had done to their inner being. They had cracked them open and realized that they were sinners and they needed salvation. So they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? There's one side of the sword. But then over in Acts chapter 7, we see another side of the sword. Stephen, perhaps a deacon in the church, but he was an evangelist. He was a proclaimer of God's word, and he was preaching to a group of his fellow countrymen. And as he proclaimed to them how they needed to repent, how they needed to change, how they needed to respond to the gospel, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54, it says they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed his teeth at him, and they took him, and they stoned him to death. You see, it's a two-edged sword. It can lead a person to respond in a way that says, I want to be saved. I want to please you, God. I want to live with you in eternity. I am a sinner and I need redemption. Or that same sword can cause the wrong kind of heart as it is cut open to respond a different kind of way. As in the case of Stephen, they took a man, an innocent man, and stoned him to death. And it's always only because Stephen pierced their heart with the word of God. It is definitely a two-edged sword, a penetrating word. But notice what it says next in the text. It says the word of God is a discerning word. The text goes on, and I'm going to read the whole thing again so we can keep it in context. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's no verse separation in the original language. They begin verse 13 here, but the thought is continued from verse 12. When he says that is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, he wants to make sure, us, make sure we understand what goes along with this. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, because of God's word, because it is a very special kind of word, A word, as we have up here on the screen, living, powerful, and penetrating, it turns into a discerning word. In other words, there is nothing you can hide from God. Because of these scriptures, you can't hide anything from God. We can reverse it and put it this way. God has revealed His will to us, and therefore there's no way that we can hide from that will. You know, you can hide things from your neighbors. You can hide things from your friends. Uh, you can hide things from your coworkers. You can hide things from your children. And yes, you can even hide things from your spouse. But you're never going to be hidden from God. 
This word exposes you for what you are. Even if nobody else knows it, God always knows it. You can't hide from God. It's interesting. The word here for uh, naked in the King James, uh, uh, I think some other translations have laid bare, is a real long uh, Greek word. That means to, um, and the reason why it's such a mile-long Greek word, I mean, you, it has like 15 letters in it, is because it's such a descriptive word, and what it is describing is a man on the way to execution. And this man is guilty of the crimes he has committed. And he, you would think on the way to being executed, you'd be ashamed and have your head laid down, but there was a custom long ago in order to make sure everyone could see your shame that the executioner would grab you by the back of the head on your, with your hair and pull your head back and put a knife to your throat and expose your neck and your face for everyone to see so you couldn't hide from your shame, so you couldn't hide from the Word of God, if you will. That's the idea here. It's also interesting, the word discerner here in the original language. The Greek word for discern is kritikros. Kritikros, what does that sound like? Well, it's the word that we get critical from or criticism. In other words, as far as God is concerned, we have been laid bare, we have been opened up. He sees everything about us and he is critical of us. He has the right to criticize us. Based on what? Based on what we find here in God's Word, He has revealed His Word for us. So what's the outcome of that? God sees all and therefore there is no escape. There's no way we're going to escape the critical eye of God. In other words, we understand and appreciate the fact that we cannot hide from Him, we can't lower our head and, and not let Him really look at us, but instead, our head's going to be lifted up, our neck's going to be exposed, we're going to be laid bare before Him, and we can't hide from Him. He is going to be critical of us based upon what we have in this particular word. There's no way we can escape His justice because of the fact that He is the one who is being critical of us. But also there's no hiding in the sense that, that we can ever get away from him. Uh, once again, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that because of this word, there's no way in the world that we will ever be able to say, I didn't know. In fact, the very next thing I have up here is that God sees all there is no excuse. I want you to notice what it says in the text. It says, but all things are laid bare and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Little translation in the Greek is with whom we must give an account to. Once again, notice what it says. All things, not just some things, not just a few things, but all things are laid bare and are open unto the eyes of him unto whom we must give an account. In other words, 
You don't have an excuse this morning. In fact, it's interesting, over in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul is describing uh, the world and describing how uh, their relationship with God has failed because they have not acknowledged Him for who He was, the God of all living, the God of creation, the God Almighty. And he goes on and talks about it and says how that God has been revealed to everyone so that they are without excuse. And then a little bit later in the same same book over in chapter 3 and verse 19, the same writer says, talking about how that God has revealed His will to mankind and mankind needs to understand that they need this salvation and how that they are sinners. In verse 19 of chapter 3, he uses this expression. He says, God has shut their mouths. In other words, you don't have an excuse. God has revealed His will toward us. God has given us this book to learn and study. And He has put before us a two-edged sword that will cut the heart and will cause us to be changed, to be transformed if we allow it to. But if we don't, then as the text points out, one day there's going to be a judgment day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 reminds us that there will be a day when each one of us will give an account of how we respond to this particular word. The word of God is a living word. It's a powerful word. It's a penetrating word. It's a discerning word. And therefore, God sees all. There's no escape. There's no hiding. There's no excuse. It's no wonder Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 that we need to be full of the Word of God. But I can't help but think, as I start looking at these two verses, and I think about how that the Word of God is a sword, a sword that is living, that is powerful, that's penetrating, that discerns us, and because of that, We can't escape from God's judgment. We can't hide our actions from Him. That there's no excuses that we can make. I start to think about that and I almost start to tremble when I think about what this verse is saying. And this verse should should scare us. This verse, two verses should upset us. But as we leave these verses today... I want you to think about an invitation and I want you to think about what the writer of Hebrews says in the next couple of verses. Notice what he says. After giving us this information about how we can't hide from God, that there's no excuse, that he's going to judge us, we're going to have to give an account based upon this word. Oh, I'm so happy that these next three verses are here in the text. Sometimes we forget these two go together. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What is our profession? He's not talking about a job here, like a profession sometimes people say. 
He's talking about the fact that we profess, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and our faith is in Him, in His cross, in His blood, in His mercy and grace that comes from His sacrifice. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore. In other words, if everything I've said thus far has been true, let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a beautiful invitation the writer of Hebrews gives us here. He reminds us that we're going to be judged by this word. There is no hiding from it. There is no excuse that can be made that you didn't know because God's word is right here. It's a sword that's going to cut you to the heart. It's going to have an effect on your life. It's a matter of how you're going to respond. You could respond by saying, oh, there's no hope, I'm too bad. Uh, I'm just the worst of sinners, there's just nothing I can do. I just give up and I know I'm condemned to hell. Or you can understand by the same, other, the same sword and the other side of it, how it cuts and penetrates the heart and it melts it and lets you know, yeah, if you compare yourself to this book, man, you're going to fall short. And there's no excuse. There's no excuse for violating the will of God. But, I'm so thankful there's this in the Bible. We have a high priest. We have a high priest that makes intercession for us. We have a high priest who has died for us. And so he stands before God on our behalf and he says, I know Jim failed in this area. I know he didn't get it right right here. I know that sometimes he messes up and he's not everything that he needs to be. But Father, I died for him. I took his place. My blood I shed that he could be cleansed from his sins. And because of that, what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, therefore, Jim, therefore any of you who are Christians... You stand boldly before the throne of God, before that throne of grace and mercy, and proclaim that you need His help so you will get the forgiveness that you need. So this morning, the Word of God is here to cut to your heart, cut to your soul. If you're not a Christian, I hope it will penetrate your heart. I hope it will prick your heart. I hope it will cut your heart and cause you to become a Christian today understanding that one day we're going to give an account. But for those of us who are Christians, as we think about the Word of God, we think about the fact, yeah, it's very critical of us. It shows us who we really are, but it also shows us what has been done so we can stand before the throne of God. If you have a need, please come as together we stand and sing.